0: part of what we're talking about is you know that people should not be so tied or reliant on our food system and have some means of food production that's closer to home. I think we all start out as nutritionists hoping to give people some more skills, some more confidence in their kitchens because making your own food instead of purchasing food that's already been cooked for you is one of the first steps towards being in better Health. But if you can also be more in control of just having access to food by being able to, um, yeah, of course, we teach people to make simple pickles and ferments and we, you know, teach them some things like that. But if you can learn to grow food, again, like that's a whole nother um, level of, I guess, self reliance.
1: So, obviously, thanks for being here with me. Um, (laughs) I appreciate you reaching out and coming on to chat. I really liked the idea of your first topic, to be honest. But when Mm -hmm. you, (laughs) I feel like I purposely asked the question the way that I did uh, to see what response you would come back. And I was wondering if you would be really candid with me about what you were thinking.
0: Mm. So, I still love our first topic. And I guess i I still live with some hesitancy around the idea of speaking about people being, um, I guess, living living through any kind of uh, prejudice or that kind of thing because I'm a very like white presenting woman with a lot of privilege. And I feel like maybe there's someone else that could be better put on that particular soapbox to make those types of comments but on the other hand I feel like this is exactly why like it needs to be talked about by people within the nutrition community because a lot of us look or you know um, relate to a certain kind of narrative Mm -hmm. about what's healthy and even about thinness and like I just feel like there's so much that we could do to dig in there and do the work for other people that have a lot of other stuff on their plate to talk about already.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, you said something though, that I think in like in the notes, when you signed up to come on the podcast, you said, I think, um, I have it written here opportunity that we have to lead in these areas. And I've been feeling, I think a lot of the same things you probably have. And I wonder how many other people have been feeling those things And that's why I said, I'm really curious as to what your viewpoint is, because one of the things that I want to do on the podcast right now is kind of open up this can of worms about being hushed and about not being able to talk about certain things based on what you just said, based on what's happening with being shadow banned and those kinds of things. And so you're going to have to help guide me to make sure that this podcast does not (laughs) get quieted if we say anything off uh, offside let's say um but that's why I kind of felt like the two went hand in hand about both topics and I feel like it's a bit spicy and I like it
0: actually that's that's a really great um connection to make between the two so yeah absolutely <laughs> <Let's>
1: do it. <laughs> are you ready because I'm ready <laughs> yeah it's I I have a lot to say um I have a lot to say. A lot of like what my background is is in food away, or like food awareness, um, ecology, sustainability, uh, farming. I used to teach eco-nutrition at the Canadian School of Natural Nutrition. So a lot of activism kind of how we can actually, you know, heal not only our body, but the earth. Um Yeah, so I have that kind of standpoint. And I'm so curious to hear somebody else's viewpoint on everything that's happened over the last few years, because I was already so aware of so many things. And now I'm so aware of so many more things. (laughs) Excellent.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's really great that you're coming from that perspective. Because although I have those sensibilities, I'm a very immersed in my urban environment. I'm very much an urban person. So I've you know gotten away from that at times in my life but I think it definitely colors like the way you see everything when I'm like you're living in a high-rise tower up like I'm literally all I see right now is sky (laughs) like and it's foggy so I don't I don't I'm it's I'm not connected to the world around me as much as you are if you're like down on the ground close to the earth and like dealing with earth um a lot so I think there's that you know just a difference in perspective, just straight from that. I'm a city girl. So, um, I've lived in this
1: city and I, I still kind of, I kind of live an urban life, but attached more to the natural side too. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I, I actually am coming up with an idea for something else that I'm working on, but it's, you know, how to like deal with what's going on in the urban environment right now. Like what can you do And what our power is as nutrition coaches to kind of incentivize people to start making the changes that we can within these bigger cities as inflation goes up, as food costs like rise, as we feel our security kind of being jostled around a bit. Um, Mm -hmm. So all of those things. And so that's why I said both these topics, I think, are in line. So I would love to just, you Mm -hmm. know, dive into some of them with you if you're feeling brave and ready. (laughs)
0: Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Let's dive in. Um, So I, for the, you know, one of the first times in my life, I didn't prepare or think about talking points, script anything out. So I'm really just showing up very raw and we'll see if I'm coherent, but, (laughs) you know, part of, part of what we're talking about is, you know, that people should basically have more in, like not be so tied or reliant on our food system and have some means of food production that's closer to home. I think we all start out as nutritionists hoping to give people some more skills, some more confidence in their kitchens because making your own food instead of purchasing food that's already been cooked for you is one of the first steps towards being in better Health. But if you can also be more in control of just having access to food by being able to um, yeah, of course, we teach people to make simple pickles and ferments and we, you know, teach them some things like that. But if you can learn to grow food, again, like that's a whole nother um level of I guess self-reliance. Because I think what we're digging into, if I if I'm on the same wavelength as you so far, is that like we are only going to be as well off as the system that we're in sort of allows us to be like and that i think we're feeling the constraints of the system that we're in especially in the last couple of years so with your background a little bit into the like environmental um activism and how that connects to our food systems i think we have some, probably have some similar interests because I did my um, bilingual Bachelor of Arts in political science yeah. and um, I went to the East Coast to do it. I wanted a bit of a different perspective, but still a Canadian one. So did classes in French and also did a lot of human rights uh, courses and a lot of just looking at, you know, what those systems kind of, how things are structured. And I think we've seen how little power we can have, um, in certain structures, you know, um, in the last couple of years, one of them being social media and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the other just being that we're all seem to be at the, um, the mercy of the big grocery chains and how much profits they want to make right now. So those are kind of two of the things that I feel are, probably um being felt by the people that have um you know the the most are in the in the in the hardest positions already and I always like to think of the term intersectionality and I think of intersectionality in everything that I do in my nutrition practice it colors everything that I I do so if we wanted to find that I think that might be interesting for listeners but um
1: I'm definitely going to get you to define that in just one sec. I wanted to go back and just kind of touch on something that you said and say, like, you know, redefining what the term well off actually means, um, what health actually means and looks like, not only on an individual level, but on a cultural level. Um, You know, we moved to Switzerland four years ago, and, you know, it was a year after we moved that the pandemic hit, actually. So we've kind of been watching from somewhere that still has a very different view on culture than we do in Canada. And I've been watching Canada from afar, from over here, but you know, like Switzerland and its food system, you know, I can drive two minutes up my road or take an electric bike up to the farm and buy all my fruits and veggies in season in line with the farmer. Um, You know, I can walk into like a self-service kind of farm space and it's based on honor, you know, like you walk in, you pay. And I guess, you know, the farmer's willing to take the chance that you might walk out with some of his food. Maybe you're really needing that food and, but it's on an honor system. And so it's been a very different vantage point from over here during everything that's happened but it's really starting to lead me down that road of wanting to talk about how we can make these positive changes. Like, I don't know if you have kids, do you have kids? I, I have one, I have a teenager, a teenage son. Yeah. And just think, well, I have two teenagers and an eight year old. So I'm Mm -hmm. starting to think about, you know, what we were talking about in terms of like environmental and climate issues when we were kids I grew up on Vancouver Island and so I was really close to the ocean that's actually what got me into biology and science in the first place was discovering the land around me and so now I think about my kids and how little they understand what's happening outside of the like box that we have (laughs) you know and how disconnected they are Um, Mm. and so now it's you know, you know, kind of redefining those terms that I, that we touched on just to create a better future for them.
0: Yeah, I absolutely love um, the redefining of what it, you know, health is in terms of, you know, there's, there's a lot more talk now, I think, than when we were their age, our children's age about Mm -hmm. mental health, which is so important, because we, you can't, you can't take those two and truly separate them. They're so um, so so deeply interwoven with each other. Our physical health and our mental health—you can't really have one without the other. So, I think that that's great that that conversation is opening up. But also, it's a really a colonial mindset to think that we can separate ourselves from the the health of the environment in which we live. Like that, we can't really. It, separate those two one can't be completely um you know being exploited without it affecting uh, you know us so I think that um yeah it's really interesting I, I did visit Switzerland once it's definitely a different kind of um culture to be raising kids in but also yeah just the the environment around the pandemic and, and them having more insular lives for most kids, they, you know, had these, um, sort of limited uh, amounts of interaction with the outside world uh, to some extent or another. I don't know what it was like there, but for, you know, here it definitely was. And, um, even just, um, the way that kids learn to interact where, um, I think we, we, my generation, I grew up where we were just expected to be outside a lot of the time and making our way with other children, even if I went to a park, it was kind of expected that I would introduce myself to these other strange children I'd never met and get to know them and then we would go play, whereas I think now that's that's a weird idea that you would just... You know, <laughs> And and I think that the reason that that's important to some extent is like, we, we can't do these things alone. If we want to make a better world for our children, we need to community build. So you need to have the skills of community building, which starts with just being able to like get to know people when you meet them and find your common ground and find ways to enjoy working together. And I think some of those basic skills, like, you know, it's kind of missing a little bit from... The, you know, the generation that's growing up now because we kept them from socializing with each other yeah. to some extent.
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. Well, through so- social media and the, I'm going to call it an outright like addiction. I'm just going to put that there. Um, <laughs> but maybe that, that's, you know, like part of the intersectionality, like definition that you should dig into, because I think you're bang on is like, we got to, we got to get past the, kind of I'm going to say ideologies but we got to kind of get past all of this like pain points that we all have and start learning to work together because to make any real freaking change in time for it to be you know worth it it's got to start now and we've got to start healing um, on very many levels in my opinion. Mm-hmm.
0: So I I'm very much one for acknowledging the barriers that people have but not necessarily, um, you know, getting bogged down by them. But I do think that we have to understand that not everyone's working with the same amount of privilege that we are. And I think that that's a really uncomfortable process. It's not fast. And so I, you know, I started doing a lot of work with Moms Against Racism, and having to confront my own internalized racism was. You know, it was a really hard process, but I think that that is, um, you know, and my own fragility, like I woke up to the fact that even though I've been a victim of, um, like, racism in my family, and even though, um, you know, I've had a lot of struggles and difficulties in my life, that doesn't mean that I haven't also had so much privilege, and I think that, like, white women make up a large portion of the nutritionist community and it would be really great if more of us did that work Mm -hmm. and saw the privilege that we're coming in with. And part of the reason that that's important to our nutrition practice is Like not everybody is going to be able to afford all the foods that we're working into all of our recipes and we're working them into our recipes because they make us feel like we're kind of fancy and then it's more likely that we're going to want to Instagram about it and like I recently did it I went on social media post a picture of me in a really nice kitchen. I just posted this like yesterday. It's not my kitchen. My kitchen's small. Like I live in a really small place. It's Vancouver. It's so expensive. I went to my friend's kitchen that she just renovated. So we, we promote these like images of how we're all doing so well on social media. And it's, that's, there's some danger in that because we all see everybody's like highlights, right? But what intersectionality really is to break that down, I think is important. So the term was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, and she was trying to find a term that would capture this idea that when a factory wasn't hiring Black women, it was deemed by the judge that this wasn't truly discrimination because the factory hired Black men and the factory hired women. Therefore, the women that weren't getting hired there didn't really have a an argument. And what she put forward for the first time when she came up with this term was, hey, women that are white are being hired for the front of this factory and men that are black are being hired to work on the machines, but no women that are black are being hired. And that's because the at the intersection where black meets female, they're in the middle and they're not just being covered by, um, you know, the discrimination going north-south or the discrimination going um, east-west. They're they're right in the middle. They're getting hit by both kinds of discrimination. And I love that construct. And I like to apply it to when I'm thinking about things in nutrition. So um, if you'll allow me to just to give an example. So Absolutely. for example, um we find that people who are vegan or vegetarian uh, tend to often be low in iron. And we find that athletes tend to be low in iron, people that have digestive troubles, gastric bypass, celiac disease, or IBD have difficulty absorbing iron. And then we also find that women that menstruate have, um, you know, especially fibroids or, you know, those kinds of things that also tend to be low in iron. So a lot of the time, a woman will go in who is an athlete, and also maybe, you um, is plant-based, she might not identify as vegetarian or something, and she has you know, um, really heavy menstruation and she'll go to the doctor and they'll look at just her hemoglobin and they won't run any more tests and she'll be sort of this dragging around, not fully energized, not great sense of concentration, really heavy in the legs, not really able to exercise anymore kind of state. And they're like, well, you don't have an iron problem. And I'm saying, well, actually she's at the intersection of multiple different risk factors for low iron. And, you know, she needs to have somebody test her ferritin Mm -hmm. because because of all this. And I think that if we apply that intersectional framework to, um, obviously I'm not a doctor, so I'm not one that's going to diagnose or run tests. But if I can know that she has these multiple risk factors, I'm more likely to say to her, hey... We can do some prevention stuff. We can make sure you're covering your daily requirements for
1: iron. You know, we can well we and and other minerals too that are the cofactors for you know the absorption of iron, right? Like absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Like if you're low in vitamin D, that can impact your iron levels. And I mean, if you're Canadian, you're likely level, you're low in vitamin D. Athletes yeah. need extra vitamin D. People who are stressed need more vitamin D. So it could be that, it could be copper, it could be like all these different. Uh, things getting in the way, but yeah, that's, that's the framework and how I like apply it to nutrition. Um, Yeah. And, and obviously intersectionality has been expanded to include everything from, you know, sexism and racism to also um, ableism and, and all these other, you know, neurodivergence. And, and I think more our clients have struggles in multiple areas, the more likely that they're being underserved by the medical model and the structure of healthcare delivery in Canada, and the more of a gap we need to fill for them as practitioners.
1: A hundred percent, especially I think when it comes to things like autoimmune conditions and mental health issues, and it's like, here's the bandaid. I mean, I do feel like in, in that sense, we might be preaching to the choir, but I don't think that it's really hit home for us. Like how many things that we could be playing a role in and also like some of the other certifications that we might hold that could actually help us round out the the gaps that are missing in the, you know, allopathic kind of um Sphere, I guess, you know, I'm reading a lot about more on the, um, the somatic kind of healing stuff. I went through my own autoimmune journey. I was ignored by doctors for seven years. Um, you know, like you're shaking your head because we've all been there.
0: Yeah, been there. <laughs> so many of us. Yeah, And I think
1: like, honestly, we got to preach and it's not just for women. It's for everybody who is potentially going to be having these issues. Because I don't know about you, but everybody's popping up with something, you know, and it's becoming more and more. In my opinion, it's becoming more and more important that we start sharing our stories and start really voicing like our experiences so that we can help as many people as we possibly can.
0: you yeah you're hitting so many perfect nails on the head so with autoimmune yes we're preaching to the crier in the sense that this podcast is probably being listened to by people that know that stress is a big factor in that and there's a lot of complicating factors like you've got to check out your gut health you can't you can't not fix that for example but I think we also need to remind ourselves if it was so hard for us To help ourselves on our own health journey, even though we took whatever, um, you know, most of us are, um, you know, lovers of education. We probably got several different types of learning behind us, different, you know, advanced coursework or different modalities. And we've needed all of that. Like, I know I had such a complex health journey. I needed to keep learning all these different things because as I kept peeling my own onion back of my own health problems, I kept needing new tools. And even with all of that, it took me such a long time to get to where I am and to create all the supports in my life that I need. All that knowledge was required to be able to be as healthy as I am today. So I just want us, uh, you know, the whole, like all the listeners to to think that if it was that hard for us (laughs) to get through in our journey and we have all this knowledge and maybe we have the privilege to have the money to take the courses that we took or the time to do it or whatever. There are a lot of people out there that are not able to do what we've done on their own, just because there are, there are other things getting in their way. And I I know that as practitioners we need to make money, and so we need to cater to people that can pay for our services. But I also feel like um, it doesn't it doesn't take extra money from them for us to equip them with a lot more free tools, like you're saying, a lot of this somatic stuff to work through trauma and stuff if we know that they need it it doesn't cost them any extra for us to teach them how to you know regulate themselves better or get through some of those stressful times even better if we know how much extra support people need
1: mm. I like what you're saying because I feel like it is within our responsibility as educators to give the knowledge that we have you know like I I do think that by keeping it behind closed doors, we're doing a disfavor to ourselves. And that's actually, I'm going to kind of touch on a little bit of a business aspect here, but it's like a lot of people have fear that if they give things away for free, that they're not going to get the full benefit of, you know, like a sale, for example. But the the truth is, is that the more you give away, the more you get back. And I think that touches on so many different things. That means the connection with the people that are truly authentically listening to what you have to say because it's genuinely helping them. Whereas like if you keep it all behind closed doors and you're maybe you know worried about what people are gonna think about you or say that you are uh, talking nonsense maybe, or whatever it is that you have in terms of a mindset block, uh, it can really hold back not only your business but also the collective moving forward because I think our stories are so powerful that if we shared them more or more authentically, even it would be that much more powerful.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think you're right that there's some fear about sharing authentically some of the things that have truly helped us because we have maybe some degree of, um, you know, feeling like we need to prove ourselves. So we need to show up with some level of authority. And we don't wanna undermine that authority by talking about things that people uh, maybe question or I think nutritionists are always uh, thinking that we need to somehow show up as um, naturopaths or we need to show up as licensed practitioners or um, we need to always prove things and make them science-based or evidence-based. And while I think evidence is wonderful. And I do think that evidence-based practices can be fantastic. Again, I want to bring it back to this, like where that's a colonial mindset that the only valuable information is the stuff that we got a certificate for is the stuff that's scientifically provable, especially in nutrition. There aren't a lot of double blind placebo controlled, (laughs) um, you know, studies out there. And you know, 500, 1,000 years of medicinal use in, in herbal medicine should carry some weight um, <laughs> as should, you know, I, I I don't think that we can uphold people's personal experience over um, evidence on a bigger scale, but I also feel like we have to share authentically our own experiences. And for me, some of the most transformative things that I've done, you um, might sound
1: really radical to people, and and maybe be outside of their comfort zone.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What do you think some of those things are? I just want to see what you feel like. Some of the things that maybe people think are the most woo woo. <laughs> I'm going to say it that way, um, just to get an idea of what you feel. Uh, maybe the the other people who are outside of our sphere might still think are a little bit offside or different or out of the box, maybe. Well,
0: after all the things that I've done and been through. I've come back to believing in transformational music festivals as one of the most healing modalities that I have ever engaged with. And that is a stance that is like probably pretty crazy for even like my a lot of my woo woo friends Um, and to some extent is something that I've been ashamed of and embarrassed, like don't talk about, because I think for me, that was true. And I don't know that that would be true for everyone, but Mm -hmm. it's about what connects to my soul and what makes me feel healed inside. And I was like born to be a raver. Like I, you know, when people asked me when I was eight, like, what do you want to do when you grow up? I was like, I want to start a disco for kids. And then I started raving in my teens. And then I left it because people were really judgy about it. And I felt like, okay, I got to grow up. I got to not do this anymore. I got to do something else with my life. And I went full on serious mode for years. But when I reconnected back to camping in the forest Mm -hmm. with music, with a whole bunch of people that just want to hug and laugh and dance and you know dancing my heart out and you know all of that i feel like the magic of those experiences was extremely healing for me and even the plant medicines and the the psychedelic transformation that um i was really able to connect with, that was able to be really transformative for me. So for me, psilocybin therapy, like I had so much trauma and that was the only way to work through all of that in this lifetime. Like, honestly, it was like 100, 1000, 1 million times faster than all the other kinds of therapy. And that's what I needed to engage in. For me, that was, um, really powerful and my personal feeling about why is that mushrooms have a holographic memory so mushroom if you put a fungus in a maze and they've done this where you have a food source and you have a fungus it will make it to the under the other end of the maze and if you culture that fungus in multiple generations like the the one thousandth generation of that mushroom, like all 999 generations of mushroom will remember, all the babies will remember how to get through that maze. They pass that memory down and until the thousand, thousand, thousandth generation. And so I feel like for me to heal my intergenerational trauma, the like the mushroom had that somehow that holographic memory that was able for me to be able to like connect back through generations and see all the things that happened, see all the pain, and then understand and forgive and come out the other side and not have to deal with any of that stuff anymore and move on with my life.
1: So I had a very similar experience when one, one time with mushrooms, and then actually through my healing journey for autoimmune stuff uh, with marijuana, so marijuana and breath work, actually, So you don't get the holographic like aspect of it. And I love that you brought up mushrooms just because I am a huge fan of fungi. And if you want to take like fungi in the garden, the microbiome of plants uh, and then the microbiome in us and on us and everywhere around us, like it just, we cannot deny that we are so connected to everything that we are not even, you know, seeing truly. Um, I have so many things I could say about this. So I just want to say like, the movement aspect was <laughs> crucial, though, and mine, maybe wasn't dancing, although I have started doing like jumbe and music and singing bowls and more on the yogic kind of side of things. And the movement aspect was really around um, yoga and breath work and moving the trauma out of my body that way. Mm-hmm. um i will sing too like chanting and singing are two that i really really love but i had the same experience where you go back and you see everything that's happened and you understand it in such a way that it's so profound that you can't unsee it mm-hmm. and you see it in every single thing you see it in everything that's going wrong today let's say everything that is wrong with like the health of the earth the environment our health the health of culture like all of it just becomes crystal 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 clear and you i feel sometimes really trapped by the idea that if i start talking about this that my privilege will get in the way of what i'm saying because i want people to connect back to land connect back to ourselves connect back to the movement so that we can move out the emotions that are intergenerational like my parents have insane trauma, which led to my trauma, which took me until, you know, three years ago to finally work through, you know? And -hmm. if you can see like our parents have trauma because their parents have trauma, they were most likely part of the war and all of those things. You can see it and unwrap it. It becomes very clear what our work is supposed to be here. It's to heal all of that. And Mm -hmm. so I think, you know, when you said that as nutritionists we have a very unique opportunity here to lead how people view this aspect of what's happening um it's very true Mm
0: and we have we can fill a position that some other practitioners can't we can take more time with people which is part of what people Need. need because the frantic pace is part of the stress like i i recently gave a talk on brain health and What I tried to to touch on is if you're healing from a traumatic brain injury or a high level of stress, cramming your schedule with appointments, even if they're for massages and therapy, isn't probably as healing as just taking things off your plate. And they found that with children, that when they just took children with ADHD and took a whole bunch of things out of their schedule, they didn't demonstrate
1: ADHD
0: anymore. So I think we just, just need some spaciousness to like, you know, experience our lives. And for some people, the past few years have allowed that, and we've had great healing because of it. Mm -hmm. Um, We were able to go internally and be more, you know, um, you know, nesting and and cocooning and, and healing inside of ourselves because of that. But yeah, it's definitely a fear to talk about this for, I think, reasons that you just touched on and also because I think we're still struggling as a, as a group uh, of practitioners to again, like assert our legitimacy. And so we all kind of like, I want to come on here and I want to tell everybody about all the things I've studied and all my certificates so that when I'm done this podcast, you know, you know, I'm a professional, but also, (laughs) you know, the things that I'm sharing are, might make me seem a bit wacky but like here's another really out there thought that I've had I had to come through a really heavy like candida fungal overgrowth at one point and you talked about mushrooms and the balance between fungus and bacteria in the garden is something if you've had a garden you know you don't just want to like have one or the other you need both in harmony for your plants to really flourish well humans are like that too and there's this idea that what does a fungus, which is naturally part of our inner ecosystem, what is its purpose? Well, it's waiting until we're on our way out and then it will compost us. So it doesn't (laughs) play that big of a role in our microbiome until we're dying. And then it's like, okay, let's compost this, you know? And I think that if you're completely overgrown with candida, when you're a very young person, you have to ask yourself, what messages am I sending That's telling these microbes I'm ready to be composted. And like, I wasn't fully wanting to be alive. Like, I had to really work on my messages that I was sending about, well, I don't want to unalive myself, but I'm not really sure that I want to also live. And that was working against me. And when I went to my cousin who's a doctor and said do you think it could be true that I'm like completely overwhelmed with candida she's like oh no not at all like that's not a possibility that's for people that have had multiple joint replacements they have you know uh, cancer and they're like in the palliative ward and like they can't fight it off anymore that's for people that don't have you know some kind of inner resilience to fight that off and I thought I think that actually applies to me. Like I'm in my early twenties. I should be healthy as anything. I've been looking after my nutrition since I was 13 years old, but there's something about me that's letting this microorganism grow out of control. And I had to address all those things. And I intuitively knew that it was true. And I'm like, I am sending a message that I'm weak. I'm sending a message that I am not sure that I want to live. And I had to build up myself as like you know in in every way to be able to fight the more microorganisms off to send the message like hey don't compost me yet like I want to be alive (laughs) one of the things I had to do is I had to go outside into the sunshine all the time and move my body and like send messages like hey look I'm using this right now like don't you know don't help compost me and that's such an
1: interesting way of like describing the experience of dealing with um candida and autoimmune stuff because that's exactly like the same the same thing is like we have such a macro view even as nutritionists I find that we have such a macro view on things like we're looking at digestive health but what does digestive health actually mean what does normal actually mean is there a normal because (laughs) you know like we're so individual. Like, we're individual beings. We have individual experiences. And I think back to that whole legitimacy part of what you were talking about was for me, I never come at this with, like, this is what I think you should do, but this is my experience. This is what I'm experiencing. Could it be relevant to you? You know, your story sounds very similar to my story. So by sharing that, I'm learning something that it's almost reaffirming that my experience could be relative to other people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like coming back to that micro view on things, I never Mm -hmm. thought that I would do this, but I bought a microscope. (laughs) And it's only helped me understand the micro connections that we have to every part of our life. But every part of our environment every part of our healing journey so like if we can dig into that more micro view on things and how those really affect us um, you know and and putting like the uh, uh, well the mindset piece like you said you needed to like tell your body I'm still here I'm still alive I'm connecting back to it you know the more the mind-body connection in that sense and getting in front of the sun And feeling life again. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think that's why the festivals for me, like a celebration of being alive, was for me so healing. And might not be such a, might not be part of a healing modality for someone else. And they do say when it comes to sound healing, for example, um, it's not so much what exact what exact music you choose; it's more that the music suits you, and that you enjoy the music. So for older folks with Alzheimer's, it's really important to um, help them with the Alzheimer's. It's important that the music that they choose to listen to is meaningful for them. Like it's from when they were younger, that's really important for them. And so I think, you know, I just want to share that piece because that worked for me because it reminded me of when I felt happiest, when I was most alive and helped me get back to that in myself. I think, um, you know, Our mitochondria seem to be such a really important piece. You
1: mean these guys right here?
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You got them on the wall, and I'm looking at them like I
1: think she's got mitochondria. Sure (laughs) do.
0: And there is that theory, which I think is quite sound and very probable, that they evolved from bacteria and then became, you know, at home in our bodies. But we have to recognize that these organisms of which there's you know not just mitochondria but bacteria and and other microorganisms in our body there's so many more cells of them than there are cells of us in this you know cell locomotion machine that we embody that that those really tiny creatures are going to be a lot more sensitive to things that we're trying to just ignore and push through and think aren't affecting us. Everything from, you know, the rise and fall of the sun in the day to that, like energy frequencies around us to, um, you know, the, the amounts of toxins that people say shouldn't make a big difference. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think that we, we need to acknowledge that there's a lot that we're learning about um, that changes our understanding of what is true about being human. And we have to also acknowledge the 15-year gap. It's usually anywhere between 11, and 12 to 15 years that it takes for cutting-edge science to make it into practice. And this is another area where I think nutritionists get in there because our practices are a lot more adaptable, flexible, less defined. We make them what we want them to be. We're not working within this this structure, this system that sort of, you know, is just like even the the curriculum for nutrition and the the programs that we make, it's constantly being like we're rewriting it all the time. It's not like medical schools or it's gonna take a really long time to get stuff you know, taught and then get stuff into practice. So we can use cutting edge information in our practices, and we can we can work to to speak to you know what our mitochondria need like right now, which you know you're usually your your um, practitioner um, you know that that you're going to see um within the the sort of conventional medical model is maybe not doing that. <laughs>
1: No, a hundred percent. I mean, my husband works very closely with mitochondrial health. He's like a fitness, he's a fitness professional working with athletes. And so we actually learned obviously a lot about how they would contribute to, you know, energy deficiency, let's say in somebody with autoimmune conditions. And so we use a lot of the same protocols that he uses on athletes to me, (laughs) you know, to build up my energy again, because it was, you know, very much chronic fatigue for over two and a half years. Like it's where I've been, guys, for the last two and a half years. Is bedridden, you know, because I would get so exhausted from everything. But now we're using, you know, the same protocols at a obviously a much lower like intensity rate, but it's working and going out in the sun again. And so, you know, if we can think back to how long mitochondria have been around in a natural environment compared to us, even evolutionarily speaking, is like, who are we feeding? You know, who are we really, you know, who's working for who here? You know, and I think when we look at it, like, we think as human beings, we're the top of the food chain, and we're the most important, but we do rely on all these other little you know, microorganisms to keep us alive and we need to be taking care of them. And that means in our body, that means in our soil, that means in every microbiome, the ocean and how that all functions, you know, with the environment as well. Um, I like to, I don't know if this is a, you know, funny way of saying this, but I like to call the mitochondria, the microbiome of the muscles. Mm, I like that. You know, like my husband was talking about it one day. I was like, do you think that that could be like a thing? <laughs> you know, cause we're like, oh, there's a microbiome in our ear. We got one in our nose. We got one in our belly button. We have one in our gut. Why are the muscles any different?
0: Yeah, that's that's genius. I mean, they have found that a lot of the supplements that we recommend to people for joint health are working by modulating the microbiome of the knee joint. And they're finding that um, like when we talk about building brown fat through doing these things like ice dunks and you know saunas and whatever we do to build brown fat that's more metabolically active than than fat we call white fat is what we're doing is we're making it more dense with mitochondria in that fat right so is that the microbiome of of our adipose tissue right like i think that it's an it's a concept that we could um create healthier microbiomes in our muscles in our in our adipose tissue, even if, if we consider them part of our uh, microbiome, like, I think that's a really neat, a really neat idea.
1: So it's interesting. It's an interesting idea. And I think that it ties back with, again, that macro micro view. It's like, where are you spending your time? Is it even when it comes to like business? And like you said, like we could be talking about cutting edge things because the microbiome and gut health, when I started practicing and when I started learning was still quote unquote controversial. Like it was still a thing, like, you know, like <laughs> can, can healing the guts, whatever we want to determine as being healing the gut affect all these mental disorders and all of those things. That wasn't, it was just coming out, you know, like I remember people, you know, being like, ah, oh, that's not a thing. And now it's very clearly a thing. Yes.
0: Um Yes, yeah, and that's such an important thing to, I think, be super clear about. Like, I started studying at Canadian School of Natural Nutrition back in like two thousand six. <laughs> like, okay. things are, like our understanding of like genetics, the microbiome, uh, mitochondria, like all the things that we just kind of touched on has changed dramatically in in this time, and it's it's super fascinating. Um, I think you just mentioned like that it was controversial that the gut could affect the brain or mant- the mental health aspect. And we know that there are parasites that live in felines that completely change their behavior. So for example, there are parasites that if they get into the gut of a wolf, that wolf is much more likely to become the leader of the pack.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: if it gets into mice, they're much more likely to make themselves uh in positions where they're going to get eaten by cats. So this sounds hmm. crazy, but the 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 um parasite can only reproduce reproduce in the body of cats. So what's happening is when it gets into other animals like mice or wolves, they're there it's changing the way that those animals think to put them into positions that is beneficial for the parasite to get back into the body of a cat somehow so either that mouse will get eaten by a cat or the wolf will go and um end up in a situation where it's actually interacting with mountain lions and stuff like that so really really wild and people think well you know our gut bacteria can't or microbiome like our yeast or whatever they can't change the way we think can they well i mean if you've ever had a candida overgrowth you know it gives you sugar cravings like you know man
1: yeah (laughs) oh (laughs) yeah Yes. (laughs) Yes, I do. (laughs) That's that's really crazy. Well, okay. So then I want to come back to kind of those, let's say like woo woo ideas. I think there's like a lot of things that I see on social media that I want to be careful to say, like don't follow any of these things as ideologies because I feel like that's a really slippery slope, you know, test and search and see how your clients react to things and then be willing to and open to changing your mind and your opinion about things because as things grow and shift within our industry and our understanding and our experiences we have to grow and shift and change with that um, as well and that's something that I think as an instructor (laughs) you know or a previous instructor that I would always say to people is like don't take anything as gospel but try Mm -hmm. and base it off of like your own experiences and what your clients have experienced. Mm -hmm. That was just a little disclaimer there, but I wanted you to go into details about some of the subjects that could be seen as controversial out on social media, because this was another topic that we kind of wanted to talk about.
0: 100%. So I think that we have this false impression that what is going to get us in trouble on the internet is if we're talking about stuff that isn't necessarily true. Now, logically, that would make sense. Logically, if you talk about stuff that is false and you're spreading false health information, well, we don't want to spread false health information. But that's not necessarily what's always gonna get you in trouble. It's not about whether it's true or not. And I just wanted to make sure everybody's really clear on that because what will get a company in trouble, like a supplement company, for example, in the US, for example, which it's one thing that social media has done is made like this line between the US and Canada like way more blurry because we all share social media and we're ingesting each other's content all the time. And so there's that. We just have to acknowledge that's a big, a big part of it. Um, but as someone that went through you know, an honors political science program. And like, I've also worked um, as a legal assistant. I've worked in business. I've been in like finance. I've done a lot of things where regulatory was like what I did. So, um, you know, helping companies go public on the stock market and stuff like that. Dealing with a lot of regulations is something that I've done a lot. And so I'm always applying the critical thinking model and like putting my ideas through the paces of the critical thinking model to find out if if it's true, or if I can at least not um, easily disprove it. But that's not really what's gonna get you in trouble on social media. It's not about falsity. You could talk about how KSM 66 ashwagandha has like all these different clinical studies that have shown X, Y, and Z, and that'll get you banned. You can't talk about those studies. If you're talking about the FDA, for example, and it being in a platform that can reach the US, which means anywhere on the internet, you can't talk about those studies. If the studies found that ashwagandha helps uh, anxiety, you cannot talk about that because you're making a health claim for... This, this supplement. So that's number one. I think a lot of people just think, oh, I just can't lie or talk about stuff that isn't proven. That's that's not the biggest thing that'll get your in trouble. I think the other thing is that there's one is the set of rules that goes with Health Canada and the FDA as regulatory agencies for health. And then there's the FCC, which is more about how we're communicating that information or the FTC. And what will mostly happen is if you're if you're getting in trouble with those organizations, you can be fined for thousands of dollars to the point where it's basically, you know, putting you out of business or like hurting your bottom line. And then there's a separate issue, which is on social media, what the algorithms of Facebook or other social media um, platforms, what they're going to look for and what's going to get you either outright banned or shadow banned. And so those are, those are two different sets of um, constraints that we have to work within, and what I just spoke about with regards to truth is more true about, you know, the uh, FDA in particular. Um, but yeah, that's that's something that we could talk about. I don't know if you have any questions about that. But
1: I was gonna uh, say maybe like going back to that ashwagandha um, example. It's like, for example, like what can you share in? Like in the two situations, what could you share? Because I was always taught in school that if you wanted to make a claim about something or share with a client, for example, like this is what studies have shown, you know, take it or leave it for your own, your own choice. And that's kind of what I was taught was okay to share. Do you want to maybe just maybe in the FDA kind of section and then the social media section, explain how you could share the health benefits of ashwagandha without getting in trouble? Mm-hmm.
0: So I think that what's really great about this podcast um, as a resource, for example, is it sometimes reminds us what our scope of practice is. Like that's something that tends to come up or we try and you know expand our abilities within our scope of practice. And so to remind ourselves, like, we can't diagnose, treat, um, we can't prescribe. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't suggest that there are certain herbs or vitamins, minerals that may be low in a person that they may need to um, augment those nutrients or that, that certain herbs may not have certain properties. We can talk about that. We can say, you know, if you have difficulty sleeping, um, lemon balm is an option, et cetera, et cetera. And the way that we talk about it, if we suggest it as food, we suggest it as tea. We talk about just the properties of those herbs, which can often be like mushrooms can be ingested as food. You do not have to take mushrooms as supplements. You're definitely in a safe zone there. So you can talk all about using mushrooms as foods, Um, you can talk all about using herbs as foods and teas and, you know, then if the, if the client wants to go to, um, the store or look online and find that those herbs are also available in a, in a supplement and take that supplement as directed on the bottle, that is totally fine. Where we get into trouble is if we start to prescribe, even if we're prescribing within the dose on a bottle, but if we're saying you have this, so treat it with this, that's Mm. crossing that line into treatment outside of our scope of practice. So, oh, you're anxious, you're not sleeping, have some ashwagandha is already crossing the line because we're essentially saying you have a health problem and we're suggesting that you treat it with something. So a lot of people really I work in the supplement industry and have for you know six years marketing supplements so I understand um that sometimes within my job I'm stepping out of my role as a nutritionist if I'm um you know doing some work there and I think you have to be clear where that line is so that's number one like do you know that you're not supposed to treat illnesses and that that would be prescribing because that's not within our scope of practice. So A, B, on social media, it's about what the algorithms are going to be alerted to. And once you have, especially if you have a commercial account, you're not just sharing as a person, you're sharing as XYZ Consulting, then now you have a different set of rules that are, that are scanning your account and if you have an account and you want to talk about health it might even be a nice idea to have a backup account before you start doing it in case you do it wrong because once that account is blacklisted it's going to be rigorously screened from now on and that's why you may know some practitioners that you followed that like dropped off and you could no longer follow them there is a great Um, practitioner originally from the Toronto area who moved outside of the country and she was sharing all types of perspectives on what she thought was happening during, um, you know, the escalation of our, uh, you know, viral situation and what she thought was going to be a good way to, um, you know, react and take care of your health. And I think she started to feel like she was being, okay, Google stop. I think she felt like she was, <laughs> sorry. What a ju-
1: no, what a juxtaposition to what we're talking about. Just like all the,
0: time. <laughs> they're, they're okay, Google stop. It's funny because I do have a Google assistant because I have ADHD and I really find it super helpful to have it. It's reminding me to take my supplements right now. <laughs> Hilarious. It's telling me to take my rodeo. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> told me to do seven minutes later of e-breathing thank you so much so (laughs) the thing is though that to be able to use that assistant it has to be constantly listening to me I turn off the camera so it's not also constantly watching me but this does inform the algorithm like it's always listening and that's just the reality of it so she did feel like oh I'm being I'm being blocked all the time because of what I'm talking about, because I'm Mm. speaking truth to things that people don't want heard. And this was like, became a very conspiratorial thought. And, but I understand what happened is at the outset, she posted a picture and it was the last picture I saw from her for quite some time. And it had children in it. Mm. If you post a picture with children in it, you are very likely going to get banned like like, or blocked or, or very tightly scrutinized on Facebook, there's certain things you have to be careful about. You have to be careful with elderly people. You have to be careful with children, anybody that looks like they might be uh, victimized, anybody that looks like there might be um, any, they're very alerted to certain types of images for bullying,
1: Ooh. for
0: um, sexual content. And so you do need to be really careful with your images. And then with certain words, you have to avoid uh trigger words so um there are trigger words that um will start the machinery of like the surveillance which does actually exist to to start to surveil you a lot more intensively and that's not so much conspiratorial as just like this is the way that we're using technology these days and and um you know that is part of the tool of government is there is um that in in government like they will scan your whole website for certain types of words what you tell your client in person is probably a lot safer than what's on your website um or what you post on social media, because it's just a, you know, a robot, an AI that's doing the job and they can't, there's no judgment <laughs> there. They don't have any health uh, background. They don't know what's safe or not. They're just literally looking for certain words that are gonna trigger, um, you know, compliance.
1: 100%, I, I hear you. Um, I've been very quiet on social media with everything that's happened in the last few years. I've been very quiet a a long time, like for a long time. And I think it's because, you know, you said, um, I think this rang really true for me. And I see it with a lot of coaches is that our legitimacy, you know, like, are we imposters? Are we like, legitimately knowledgeable enough to help somebody else? And I think that holds a lot of us back from actually speaking the truth um, of what we see. And I think it's important, especially for practitioners who have been kicking around the sphere for more than 10 years, to start sharing and speaking about some of the things that we've seen happening. You know, you've been in the industry since 2006, you said, right? I graduated, but I kind of started digging into nutrition around like 2012, 2011, even, and what I've seen happen over the last 10 years, um, you know, like gardening was kind of my initial thing that actually got me into nutrition in the first place and understanding the interconnectedness between us and our food and our land. Um, and I'm going to say our land because I mean our land as a world because it's all of ours. You know, mm-hmm. like we we do have to start taking care of it together In order to survive, (laughs) you know that's really how I see it now. And so, you know, I have been really quiet. So, my next question to you is kind of like, what do you see as being the next steps forward for us? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: My personal feeling on it is that my so my experience have shown me where the biggest gaps are in our current healthcare model, the delivery. And I would like to, while staying compliant to scope of practice, I would like to, because I think that's important, I think it's, I think it's great, but I'd like to push the boundaries of standard of care for what we deliver as nutritionists to better fill that gap in the current model, because I feel like there are so many needed areas that are on like on where people are being underserved and I feel like there are entirely new areas that are almost unserved and I feel like the way that we fit into um the structures is up to us to completely define it's 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 partly defined there are some constraints but you know sometimes a lift some constraints make it simpler to figure out where you fit so I think we can just go where we fit and, and expand into those spaces. And that's a little bit um, esoteric or maybe a bit vague, but I, I mean, you know, it's great to have a niche because you're going to have a little bit less of that, maybe imposter syndrome because you're going to be able to really learn an area. But I think our, it's all these areas of our lives that really are affecting our health and, and not to just because we're niching down into something doesn't mean that we deny that your relationship at home is a huge factor in how healthy you are. You have a great relationship. It sounds like with someone who's also health-minded, who's willing to apply what they're knowing into helping you to get like, I wouldn't be where I am if it weren't for my, like my relationship, my health of, like my home life that I've built and my, my partner, like that having a supportive life partner has completely been important. So I guess the reason I bring that up is just like, we, we need to get specialized, but we also need to like expand standard of care to asking the people that we're dealing with, like, how are things really, like, how are things in the big picture? Not just how are you eating, but how are you doing? And, and then, you know, showing up for them as human beings, first and foremost, not just as people who eat.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because it's not, we're not just feeding the body, we're feeding the body, mind and soul. And I think it's that sleep, sleep, stress, movement, nutrition, but the self-care, you know, basis that has really hit home for me as being kind of like the over, well, it's like that the self care is the foundation. And then to have the overarching term of true wellness, you have to have all of those things in check. And one thing that is missing is that interconnectedness between each other. And I can say that as like human beings, or as practitioners, like we're all kind of doing this whole like, I'm doing my thing, I'm specializing out, I'm going to go this route, this person is my competition. And I think we have to start banding together and really like, leaning on each other to create a space where we can fill those gaps, like you said.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the ideas that I've had recently that I would really love to um, develop more is a collective of people that are nutrition practitioners. And as you've touched on earlier, none of us are just nutritionists. A lot of us have some other modality. Like I am also someone who's a tapping into wealth coach because for me growing up in poverty, I felt like that mindset and that poverty was holding me back from being able to get well. I couldn't eat the way I wanted, live the way I needed to, or you know reduce my stress until I got out of poverty. So I had to like work on that to be able to get to a point where I could actually get well. So that's just an example of a modality. And there are a lot of people who are like, you know, sound healers or yoga teachers and also nutritionists. And if we could work together as a collective to help people, instead of each trying to be everything for each one of our clients, like some of my clients are extremely complex health cases, they are and, and I love helping them because they're complex. Like, I think I seek out people that have complex health issues. But if I had a collective of people that I worked with where we shared resources and we shared helping people so that somebody came to us and we were a team and we looked after them and we delivered different aspects of care, um, you know, to these people, I think it would be really powerful. And um, I I would really like to see more of that more collective healthcare. I think that that's going to be a trend going forward where people are healing more (laughs) together. Um, And part of I think, I I hesitate to use the word trauma informed, because that's a specific terminology that is for therapists. But you know, I first studied nutrition in 1992 as somebody who had no energy and didn't know what was wrong with me and needed to figure it out. And I was like, just starting high school. And I was like, why am I so tired? And the first stuff that I read was about having a vegetarian diet. So I did that. And then I went to nutrition house and I read a chart about Nutrient deficiencies and I looked at B vitamins. So I started taking B vitamins and green magma spirulina and like <laughs> became a vegetarian because I thought that would help me. And the reason I bring that up is that my first experience showed me that the surface level information that's out there that people think they're getting educated about nutrition and then they go and help themselves. It's there's so much to nutrition to know. It's not that simple. You can't just learn a little bit, read a couple books and then help yourself out of your health problem. And that's why we have, I think, imposter syndrome, because you know, you never know it all, you know, and that's because this is one of the most complex topics that you can possibly study and work in. We need to actually honor ourselves for being in an extremely difficult, extremely difficult industry topic, whatever. not only do we have to completely teach ourselves business, you have to, grapple with so much information about the, you know, the way the body works is it's crazy. It's so intricate. There's so much to know, but my, my experiences showed me that we're always trying to simplify it. And we're always trying to come up with a simple message and make it like a sound bite. That's going to be really something that people can easily digest. Um, and, we're not really understanding how we need to be gentle with people while they're going through this process. Cause it's, it can be overwhelming. Um, and so I want that gentleness to come in. Um, I want to trust people when they tell you that they're experiencing something, because like you said, you, you want to speak to people like this was my experience. It's not necessarily like the only truth. Um, mm-hmm. really be gentle to people like, like, be supportive um, and, and understand that it can be really, it can be really overwhelming because it is complex. And even though we might try and simplify it down to give them a sound bite to make it easy for them, because there's all these other practitioners and they're all coming up with different sound bites. A lot of the time it's contradictory because that's the nature of, of health and nutrition. So it, there is a lot of contradiction. Oh, my fire, my smoke alarms are being tested now too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, technology. No, it's, it's, I mean, it's do But yeah,
0: been... I'm probably talking on too long anyway. So I think that's probably good. Um, But yeah, I just want to see gentleness. I want to see us working together more um, to, to support people more as teams. Because I think we need to work with others instead of being so isolated.
1: Yeah. And uh,
0: people need our support. And I have to go get people in here to test smoke alarms oh my god I'm so sorry holy crap
1: yeah technology um <laughs> safety first though well if there was one thing that you wanted I'll, I'll be quick I think this is a really interesting podcast well we have tons to talk about obviously um but if there was one thing that you could leave people with today what would it be
0: honor everything that you're feeling and, um, don't discount it. You never know what we're going to find out about the body and about how it's working. That might with that might show that what you're intuiting has some validity. So just honor yourself and get support. Um, you know, none of us can heal. Um, we're not, we're not islands and none of us can heal alone. So whether that's within your home or from, um, some kind of health practitioner, um, You know, take care of yourself, mind, body, and spirit.
1: Amazing! Thanks for being with me today and recording. Thank you so much, Lynn, for having me on.